Sit Rep on BFBS. Tories want to talk Trident, but what does it mean to voters? The only responsible choice is to recommit to our continuous at sea deterrent now. Why is Iran sending ships to Yemen? Where are North Korea's missing missiles? And why 2015 is a big year for the Gurkhas? Hello, I'm Paula Middlehurst. So, the election campaign in full swing, and today it's all about defence, particularly Trident. The Conservatives have confirmed they'd replace the nuclear weapon, but they say people who vote for Labour would be taking a gamble with the security of the United Kingdom. Here's the Defence Secretary and what he had to say, Michael Fallon. In an increasingly dangerous world, in which we cannot know now what threats, what nuclear threats may emerge... The only responsible choice is to recommit to our continuous at-sea deterrent now so that we can cope with any direct nuclear threat to the United Kingdom or to our NATO allies. And Michael Fallon accuses Ed Miliband of stabbing the UK in the back to gain the Scottish National Party's support for a future Labour government. But that's a suggestion dismissed by Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary Vernon Coker. We believe in a continuous at sea deterrent. That's what the Conservatives believe, and that's why we're so surprised, really, at what's happening today with the headlines we've seen in the papers speculating about us weakening that, where that is not the case at all. One can only suppose that they're doing that for electoral purposes. And the Scottish National Party position completely different. Their leader, Nicola Sturgeon, saying Trident is a red line for her party. We will never, ever, ever vote for the renewal of the Trident nuclear missile system because at a time, at a time when we are talking about austerity and the impact of austerity, it would be completely and utterly immoral to be spending £100 billion putting new weapons of mass destruction on the Clyde. That money should be invested in the future of our children. And the Liberal Democrats trying to steer a more compromised line. Their defence spokesman, Sir Nick Harvey, says his party wouldn't have nuclear submarines out on regular routine patrol. If the international security situation were at some point in the future to deteriorate to the point that we genuinely feared a specific nuclear adversary again, we would need to have enough nuclear capability and a well-rehearsed routine for putting it all back together again to resume those patrols. Well, UKIP says it's committed to the renewal of Trident and would spend more on defence than the Conservatives. Patrick O'Flynn, UKIP's economic spokesman, criticised Michael Fallon's comments. It's a bit odd uh, that Michael Fallon should be trying to link the defence of the realm to the way in which Ed Miliband became Labour Party leader. Uh, and that personal attack, to me, speaks of a defence secretary who's trying to distract from the fact that the Conservatives are not pledging to fully resource our armed forces. They're not meeting the NATO 2% commitment. I'm joined, as usual, by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee and Naval Historian and Defence Strategist Professor Eric Grove. Uh, Professor Grove, defence isn't usually a big election issue. Are you surprised the Conservatives have chosen to make it so? Well, yes, because actually they're... 
their record on defense isn't that good. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the so-called Strategic Defense and Security Review really was a terrible blow to Britain's maritime capabilities in terms of maritime patrol aircraft and, and reducing the number of frigates and destroyers and indeed having a, a, a break in our carrier capability. But, but I think the Conservatives are going to have to say, come on, we, we will do better next time, particularly as I get the impression that Labour is saying, look, no, we are going to spend money on defense. We aren't going to have quite so many cutbacks. And, they've, and they are becoming, paradoxically perhaps, the pro-defence party. And all these uh, options now, as far as Trident is concerned, for the electorate to get their heads around, why do we need four submarines, Eric? Well, uh, we need the four submarines to make sure that one is at sea. I mean, there has been talk of of our being able to sort of get away with three, because modern reactors don't need quite the same same sort of maintenance as the older ones. But the Navy is very much committed to continuous at sea deterrence, CAS-D as it's called, and uh, four submarines makes it certain that we can keep one at sea at all times. And of course that's, that's the important thing. It's the one thing I know that the Russians are concerned about, the fact that we may be able to, well we can destroy Moscow if they fire nuclear weapons at the United Kingdom. Lib Dems are reacting to that saying in the absence of an actual enemy, uh, we wouldn't have the submarines out on those regular routine patrols. Could that work? Well, we have an enemy, really, and it's Russia. I mean, Russia's on the march, and I think people ought to realise that, and, then, and, and, they need to be, and they need to be contained. Uh, and so, in fact, uh, uh, what Putin has been doing has made it even more important that, uh, that we maintain a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed a submarine on patrol at all times. And uh, it's the one thing the Russians are concerned about. I remember back in the Cold War, there was strong evidence that... Um, we wouldn't be attacked in the case of a limited nuclear war in Europe because we had the had the capability of taking out Moscow if Britain was attacked. That was, then, that, uh, that was then and this is now. Christopher Lee, do we need Trident and can we afford it? We need Trident because we've got it to some extent. And his question is not, a, it's not the question of whether we should renew Trident. That's decided. That's been voted on. It was voted on um, a few years ago, including by Labour and the Liberals. Um, it is a question of whether we should renew it and in what form we should renew it. What we have heard from the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, is really a political statement. We knew that the Tories were going to renew Trident. We know that Labour is going to renew a nuclear deterrent. It may be three, maybe four or whatever, but this is a whole uh, a political act. And the way it's been strung out, for example, we have uh, the Defence Secretary staying, saying, oh, well, the, the leader of the opposition stabbed his brother in the back and now he's going to stab the nation in the back. People who are going to vote don't remember who his brother is. And this is political. Do you need Trident? Yes, because you've got it. Are you going to do it? Yes, because it's already been announced we're going to do it. The form of a nuclear, uh, independent nuclear deterrent, that is going to be the issue. And it's not a very big one. Uh, what do you think, Professor Eric Grove, aside from the politicking, the stabbing in the back comments and so on? As far as Trident is concerned, it is now a big issue in this election, before this election. What should the voters be looking for in terms of well, facts? Well, Trident is the most cost-effective system. After all, uh, we buy a number of American missiles. They look after them at Kings Bay, Georgia. Uh, then we add the warheads to them when they come to Britain. For the, for the level of capability that Trident D5 and uh, offers and its successor will offer when that comes along, uh, it is a remarkable bargain and it, it is the foundation of our, of our security. And in a world where Putin is on the march and Russia is on the march, 
we need as much capability to help contain Russia as we can possibly get. And without, and without continuing Trident and without continuing a nuclear deterrent, we would be in serious trouble. Professor Eric Grove, thanks for joining us. So, Christopher Lee, staying with another general election issue, it's still related to defence. What did you make of that letter written by those former defence chiefs writing to the Times newspaper about greater protection from prosecution under human rights law as far as battle conditions are concerned? OK, this was last Tuesday in the Times, and there's a group of former chiefs of the de- defence staff. You can't get much higher, including the last one, uh, 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 Lord Richards. They're very concerned with this possibility um, that British forces could be prosecuted as a consequence of their actions in battle. Um, Now, international, EU, human rights laws, etc., have the authority to prosecute so much so that the United States has refused to sign up any international agreement that could lead to the prosecution of the actions of any of their soldiers. Now, the United Kingdom doesn't refused to sign up. It signed up things like human rights laws. You could actually find British soldiers as a consequence of an action ended up in the International Criminal Court, for example, uh, of The Hague, and there have been attempts to make that so. And what these guys are saying, do not send troops into battle, commanders of those troops, that's from troop level, you know, 8, 12, 25 guys, or up to battalion brigade level, all levels of command where the commander's got to think to himself, now hang on, this is a tricky one. What happens if this gets slightly out of hand? I've got to think of human rights. As in the Bahamusa case, of course. That's exactly the that. Case. Exactly that. And you've got, a, you've got a consequence, possible consequence, that something which was a straightforward military action might be corrupted. And the guy's are going to be standing into a second sort of danger, and that second sort of danger is a criminal court. For the moment, Christopher Lee, thank you. Still to come, North Korea launches missiles to welcome the US Defence Secretary to the region, and we find out what's planned for the Gurkha 200 celebrations. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Well, early this week, North Korea fired two surface-to-air missiles off its west coast. It happened shortly before the US Defence Secretary Ashton Carter arrived in the region. Edward Schwark is a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, specialising in Asia studies. Thanks for talking to us today, Edward. So uh, this visit from Ashton Carter then just arrived in South Korea. What's its purpose? Well, the US officials, uh, US officials have said that uh, Carter is going to start his trip by meeting uh, American troops stationed in Korea. And then on Friday, he'll sit down for talks with his South Korean counterparts. Um, I'd say that um, in the wake of uh, large-scale joint military exercises, the full Eagle military exercises that were held last month, that these talks this week will probably be aimed at uh, the same kind of issues of interoperability between U.S. and Korean forces and planning uh, joint responses to sort of contingency situations with the North, uh, conventional provocations, but also perhaps um, what the response will be in the event of a third nuclear test, uh, which is uh, something that the regime in Pyongyang has been uh, threatening obliquely for, for some time now. And that cooperation that you speak of is something he was trying to nail down, really, when he visited Japan as well uh, earlier this week. What exactly were his aims there? 
Japan is, is, is slightly different. Um, the same sort of ideas apply, but the, the audience is different. Uh, the visit to Japan is, is really centered on the threat that Japan is, is facing from China. So Japan is currently rewriting its defense program guidelines, um, and these, this is the strategic document that determines how U.S. forces would operate with their Japanese counterparts during military contingencies. It's a very important uh, thing that's released uh, every few years. Um, so, you know, the Carter's visits will, will undoubtedly include discussions about this, but it's also about sending a message to Beijing that U.S. support is unwavering. Now, the PLA at the moment is scrutinizing the U.S.-Japanese alliance to find out how far Washington would be willing to go uh, in the event of in, in the event of conflict. So, Washington is very much aware of this, and it uses these sorts of visits to continuously demonstrates that it is committed to Japan um, and it is prepared to respond uh, to any contingency. And I suppose as the Japanese Prime Minister, as you mentioned, Shinzo Abe pushes for that higher profile regional role, if you like, for Japan at a time of growing disquiet in Asia over the rise of the newly assertive China. That message to Beijing, very important. But I suppose the question is how they're going to achieve that. Well, it's... Um it sent, I guess you could say it centers on a uh, reinterpretation of the article in the Japanese constitution um, that limits the use of force overseas. Um, now, Japan still maintains very stringent controls on the use of force overseas, the waging of warfare, but the new revisions um, allow uh, among other things, allow Japan to come to the aid of an ally under attack. Other restrictions that have been lifted include the deployment of Japanese combat troops and peacekeeping missions, and also the sale of arms to like-minded countries like the UK, but also countries within the region who may be struggling with, uh, with their defense capacity. So actually, uh, Japan has been very willing to provide training and maritime awareness as well as uh, providing um, military technologies to those countries. And the aim is twofold. It's partly about showing that Japan is a responsible stakeholder. It's about showing that Japan is taking on the, some of the burden for its own defense and it's not relying entirely on the United States. But the second aim is, is, is helping other countries in the region develop their capacity to resist uh, coercive actions by China. Edward Schwark from Rusi, thanks for joining us. So, Christopher Lee, those emerging threats in the region, how seriously should we be looking at China? China is so important for obvious reasons as an expanding uh, commercial organisation, but also the way that it's expanding probably faster than ever before its own forces uh, in all three areas. Naval is uh, expanding at an astonishing rate, something like sort of 28% over last year, and the, the amount of money. But there is a common think in this. Uh, all the problems in that part of the region... I suggest, are sort of carefully managed, managed even when there's instability, except for one, uh, and that is North Korea. Now, one of the reasons that we know that the North Koreans have done some test firing uh, is because to say to the American uh, Defense Secretary, when you come here, go south of the border in, into South Korea to meet your troops there, uh, we can show you we're a, very much a threat. But think what troops they're going to see. It's not just a joint exercise, as we're sort of suggesting perhaps, you know, an annual exercise. There are 30-odd thousand American troops permanently based in South Korea. Uh, 
Now, turn it round, and you think what it would be like if we had a potential enemy like the United States, and they based just south of or north of our border 38,000 troops. We would be a bit twitchy, and this is the way it goes. Now, there's another side of it. They're developing something at the moment called the, the KN-08. It's a 1,000-mile-range missile. They could miniaturize a nuclear warhead and stick it on the end of a few of those missiles. Watching that, watching the whole, or monitoring the whole, is the North American Aerospace Defense Command in Cheyenne Mountain. And there's an admiral that runs the whole place called Courtney. And I was listening to him talk about this, and he said, well, in the past, we've been able to keep track of North Korean missile systems. We seem to have lost the ability to keep daily track of this one, the 08. And this is the one that everybody fears because of not just intentions maybe by North Korea, but when you get mistakes, when things get out of hand, and we haven't got the ability to run it at the moment. Now, I think we're going to see some more uh, missile firings, and the ones that happened earlier this month were 08s, and that's the problem for the Americans at the moment in the Far East. And what sort of numbers are we talking about? We're talking in the hundreds. They could actually produce them in the hundreds. I mean, once you decide to produce, it's a manufacturing process because they actually know what they can do with them. And these test firings are real test firings, and they're done logically, uh, and they're done normally. For example, uh, certain areas where they'll do splashdowns in the Pacific, everybody's warned to keep out of the way. It's not as if they suddenly whoosh, what was that? You know, and somebody said, well, I think that was a missile. No, you get, you get full notice of what's happening. Let's move, Christopher, from Asia over to the Middle East. Uh, we know the US Secretary of State, John Kerry, has warned Iran over its support for Houthi fighters in Yemen. He said the US would support any country in the Middle East that felt threatened by Iran. Uh, he's made these comments in response to Iran putting two of its warships in the Gulf of Aden. What exactly is your assessment of what's happening in that region? OK, well, if we take Yemen and we, we look at it uh, not just as a blank country... There are two major uh, military and political thoughts in, in Yemen to start with. Uh, you have the Houthis, who are Shia, and they're backed to some extent by the Iranians. You also have what the Americans believe is the biggest threat to Western society, and that's Western Europe as well as, as, well as the United States, and that is the biggest concentration of al-Qaeda hierarchy and training and their whole sort of philosophy with the way they're teaching other people, bringing other people down. With the collapse of the government in Yemen, al-Qaeda, which was bottled up before, is now getting freer reign, and it's been carrying out some of its own attacks. But what's happening here is the Saudis, who feel most threatened, one is because... Uh, Everybody in, in the Yemen, being Shia, is against the Saudi regime, which is Sunni, um, is threatening Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has managed to pull together all or most of the Gulf Cooperation Council states, like ones in, you know, in the Gulf, like um, um, UAE, etc., to say, listen, we can't be doing this. We've got to go and zap those guys. And they've been flying in to hit them. We have a thing, remember, we always say, well, bombing can't do it all. We have to have boots on the ground. And that's where we got to with Yemen. But whose boots we get on the ground? The idea, it should be local boots on the ground. That's where we've got to. It's probably the most dangerous region that we have seen in 10 years in the Middle East. 
For the moment, Christopher Lee, thank you. This is SITREP on BFBS. Now the Brigade of Gurkhas is celebrating its bicentenary this year. Lots of events taking place to mark the occasion, culminating on the 9th of June, with Her Majesty the Queen attending an open-air pageant at the Royal Hospital Chelsea, telling the story of 200 years of Gurkha service to the Crown. A little earlier, I spoke to Lal Shahi, the manager of our own Gurkha radio service, down in Shorncliffe. Yes, it's a very big event for all the Gurkhas now serving and who have just retired because, you know, uh, 200 years um, of service to the Crown is not a, you know, um, easy thing to do. And um, yes, um, there are so many events um, being organized. Uh, one of them is um, the Mount Everest expedition this year because up until now, no serving Gurkhas have ever scaled Mount Everest, and our Brigade of Gurkhas team have already left for Nepal, and they are on their way to the Everest at the moment, I'm told. And in UK, there are so many uh, events uh, going on at the moment. Um, this April will be a very busy period for us, because um, we have a, a brigade a march from Wellington Barracks to Gurkha statue in London, um, which will be followed by a memorial service. And there are so many other events going uh, concurrently. Anything in particular you're personally very excited about? I'm excited about this event in London um, because uh, it's a you know, public event and so many uh, people will be watching that. Uh, Brigade of Gurkhas marching through London streets and um, there'll be a memorial service uh, by the Gurkha statue in London. Uh, that's I'm looking forward to. And a time like this, when such an amazing uh, celebration is taking place, makes people think all sorts of things. There are the happy times to remember, there are colleagues' lives who've been lost to reflect upon and so on. How do Gurkha officers, uh, both past and present, feel about these commemorations? Yes, you quite rightly said that there were happier times, there were, you know, sad times, sad times in terms of um, their comrades, you know, um, killed in operations, etc. But, uh, you know, um, thinking of um, the past service uh, in the Brigade of Caracas, uh, of course, uh, one is to cherish um, how their time, you know, was like um, during their service. And the young ones, um, I'm, I'm sure they are enjoying their service with um, the brigade at the moment. They have seen so many operations in their uh, service. So, um, you know, it's a mix of, um, uh, you know, uh, happy and sad times. But uh, after all, it's a big you know, big year for Gurkhas. It's a huge year. Uh, the story of the Gurkha soldier to be told, we understand with narration by Joanna Lumley, who of course has been such a huge supporter of the Gurkhas, particularly over the last few years. Dan Snow as well is there. Battle reenactments, musical performances by the popular band of the Brigade of Gurkhas as well. Lots to celebrate, Christopher Lee. 
There is, and the important thing, Lal, isn't it? It's a lot to, lot to celebrate, not just for the Gurkhas, but for the, the British people. Tell me, why do you think it is that the British people have a special place in their hearts for the Gurkhas? I think it's uh, due to their you know, loyal and selfless service um, for so many years. Lal Shahi, the manager of our Gurkha radio service, down in Shorncliffe, talking there to us earlier. This is Zitrep on BFBS. Now, tomorrow is the 75th anniversary of the Second World War's Battle for Narvik. It was a violent confrontation between British and German ships at the end of, fjord, of a fjord. Ron Cope has written a book on the battle. It's called Attack at Dawn and is published later this month. Ron joins us now. Welcome, Ron. Thanks. Tell us about your personal connection to the battle. Yes. Um, my father was a 21-year-old torpedo man who was actually on HMS Hardy at the time. And as you can imagine, those people who were on the upper deck, like the torpedo men, had uh, the full witness of the battle. My father, um, in some ways, had a photographic memory. And when he got to about the age of 50, he decided to actually write a book. Wow. And um, he never actually got round to it because he was the instigator of what was called the Second um, Destroyer Squadron Association of the Battle of Narvik, which he started off and became the honorary member, uh, sorry, honorary secretary. And after about um, two years, he, he actually recruited something like 200 members. And then from then onwards until he got into his... 80s, he was very busy organising reunions, some of which were with the veterans from Germany, and who, who were actually in the battle as well. And, yeah. and tell us about that, the battle itself. I think most people listening will have heard of it, but 75 years on, what happened? Well, you say a lot of people have heard of it, but the, the battle itself occurred in the first six months of the Second World War, which the Americans, Americans call the phony war because of very little lapling. Um in some ways uh, if someone said if I said to someone I'm going to write a book which is going to be fiction whereby five small destroyers would have very little intelligence as to where they were going to go and how much enemy was they were going to confront then that's fighting blind isn't it that's right so there was very little information and at the end of the day um, Captain Warburton Lee who was D2 in other words he was in charge of the flotilla um, made his own mind up and backed by Winston Churchill who had, by then had become the first sea lord um, Churchill said basically that um, if you go you make your own decision and I will back you up whichever way and was it a battle worth fighting? It was a battle worth fighting. Um, the actual Navic campaign was not a success. But it was, it was the actual first battle, because there was two battles. The first, which is the anniversary tomorrow, and another one, the second one, occurred about three days later, on the 13th. 
Um, when originally they thought there was about six German destroyers, far larger than the British ones, as well as um, a submarine had actually gone down into Narvik. When they got there to the harbour, um, and, and, and once again, you have to remember it was darkness, it was snowstorms, uh, there was parts of the fjord which came very, very close together. On one occasion, they saw a, 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 what appeared to be a Christmas tree almost, with lights all over it. It was a ferry, a passenger ferry. So all these kind of things you had to negotiate. When they finally got to Narvik, they couldn't believe the fact that they were asleep. And that was four o'clock in the morning. And that's when the attack took place. Ron Cope, a fascinating story and I'm sure a fascinating book as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, just one final thought from you, Chris Lee, on this uh, trident issue in the election. One final thought? Interesting, the whole debate about renewing trident and where we will stand on trident. One question they're not asking, not daring to ask. If we did not have trident, an independent nuclear weapon, would we go out and buy one? My thanks to all our contributors and, of course, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, with that final thought there. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. From me, Paula Middlehurst, thank you very much for listening and it's goodbye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.